0: In a relatively well-known passage of his little metaphysical treatise, De Antia Descentia, On Being and Essence, St. Thomas Aquinas explains the meanings of several basic philosophical terms. All of them, he tells us, refer to the same reality, but they do so from different angles or under different conceptions. Two of the terms are essence and nature. Something is called an essence, he says, quote, insofar as through it and in it, an entity ends, has being, Essay. But that which is an essence is also called a nature, quote, insofar as it has an order toward a thing's proper activity. Now, maybe a little bit less well-known at least judging from how my own students react to it, is that St. Thomas following Aristotle regards this meaning of nature as only an extended meaning, a secondary meaning. He thinks the principal meaning is the one laid out in Book Two of Aristotle's Physics, a thing's primary intrinsic principle of motion and rest. In this sense, not every essence is a nature, for not everything is mobile. Incorporeal substances have activities, they have intellectual activities, but they don't have any motions in the proper sense. Only bodies are moved. Later on, I'll talk about why that's the case. But speaking strictly, then, natures only belong to, if you'll pardon the redundancy, physical substances. How did it get extended, the term nature, how did it get extended to essences generally? Aristotle says it's by the fact that the natures of physical substances do turn out to coincide with their essences. The essence of a physical substance consists of its form and its matter, and chiefly the form, and as we learn in the physics, the term nature in the primary sense also applies to both matter and form. And at least on Thomas's reading, it too applies, above all, to the substantial form. So the term nature eventually came to be applied also to immaterial essences, which are pure forms. But what I want to explore here is this identification of nature in the strictest sense with a physical body's substantial form. I think we can ask the question: Couldn't a thing have in itself a principle of motion, and yet the thing's essential makeup, through which it has being, as Thomas says, have no direct, immediate, kinetic implications? Why couldn't a nature just be kind of a power or an energy that a thing kind of happens to have? If the thing is carrying with the things. Substantial makeup or its essence underlying that? Hmm. Why does the nature itself have to be substantial? Or if you prefer, why must the thing's essence through which it has substantial being include a form and not just any form, but one that is a nature, that is a principle of motion? Why do those go together? That's, that's the question I want to address. So first, if only to jog some people's memories, uh, let me say just a little bit more about the terms of the question. In Thomas's thought, physical nature in general reflects what he takes to be the origins of its Greek and its Latin names. Aristotle teaches him to link physis to the phenomenon of growth, and he himself links natura to the phenomenon of birth. So, Thomas finds natures mostly in things that come into being and pass away, and in the most conspicuous cases, things that also grow and develop and also decay, living things. There are many different natures. Individuals whose natures do not differ are said to be of the same species or the same kind. Each kind has its own way of moving, and resting, its own way of acting and being acted upon, but even though the kinds move in and act in very different ways, Thomas thinks that a tendency can be observed very readily in the way of each kind mm, toward the good of the kind, mm, and especially toward its continuing in being, the conservation of the kind. In his judgment, generating new individuals of the same kind is quite generally, these are his, his words, the most natural activity. And in some way, all of the things natural activities are tied in with or ordered toward the conservation of the kind. First in the individual itself, and then through the generation of others of the same kind. With that, with generation corruption, comes the distinction between matter and form. A thing is generated when its matter receives its form. It's corrupted when the matter loses that form and receives another. The form of the thing is what determines its kind. In living living kinds, the forms are called souls. I think it should be clear why this form, the one that determines the thing's kind should be the thing's nature that is the inner principle of its activities. If those activities, the activities that are natural to a thing, are ordered directly toward the conservation of its kind, it seems like they must be rooted in the very principle that determines the kind. You can see the connection. So what makes dogs do what they naturally do is nothing other than what makes them be Dogs. Now that might sound pretty banal, said like that, right? It might sound like nothing more than what Forrest Gump's mama said. Remember she said, stupid is as stupid does, right? But there's more to it than that, there's really more to it than that. What is done naturally is usually good for a thing. hmm? Good for the individual and good for the individual's kind that's not true of what's done stupidly right that's usually not good for anybody really i think this we should focus on this this entity that we're calling the nature and the form of a thing it's really quite remarkable it's something which just on its own just of itself just by being the sort of thing that it is promotes itself and communicates itself it's apt to keep on going indefinitely and Thomas regards this kind of form as a likeness, he calls it, a likeness of the divine being. That's the title of one of Father Duan's books, by the way. And he also, Thomas also regards it as the very first effect of the divine wisdom. So understood, clearly natures are anything but stupid. They're not stupid. Let me just say one wo- word or two about Essence. Thomas says that the essence of a physical thing is what the definition of the thing's kind expresses. In his view, that's not quite the form alone. It also extends to the matter up to a point. It's the form together with what the form itself entails or requires in the matter. Maybe we can say that the essence is what is formal about a thing. Hmm. In that way, it, may, it kind of makes sense to call the definition of the essence a formula, right? which really just means a little form, right? a formula. Many individuals differing in being can be the same in kind inasmuch as they do not differ by virtue of their forms or of what is formal about them, but only by conditions accompanying the reception of their forms in their matter, that is, accompanying their generation. What is directly generated, in fact, is an individual, not a kind. But what the generation of an individual primarily tends toward is not the individual as such in its individuality, but the being of the kind in the individual. And that's shown by the fact that the tendency of generation is toward an individual that is itself apt to generate still others of the same kind. Taken in itself, without individuating material conditions, the nature of a kind is universal. A universal, a one in many. Thomas says that a universal being incorruptible is in a way more of an entity. Magis ends. More of an entity than a particular is. But only in a way. Mm. Natures are universal as objects of reason reason abstracts what is formal about a thing from its material conditions and expresses that in a universal way. It expresses the thing's essence in a definition, which is something universal. But reality is prior to what reason does, and as to real being, Thomas says, a particular or an individual is more of an entity. It is a primary substance, or what Aristotle calls a... A this something, a todeti, uh, Thomas's hoc aliquid. Right? And the natures of the kinds are conserved in real being only through the generation of individuals. But what I really want to stress in all of this is that both in its real being and as an object of reason, nature or natural form is something that's apt to promote or extend itself. Of itself, it kind of spreads. It spreads out, it stretches out in space and in time. It does so across individuals by propagation from generation to generation. It even does so in one individual, sometimes in space by bodily growth and always in time by the individual's clinging to its natural being, holding on to its being. The form does that. Thomas uses that language. It holds on to the being of the thing as long as it can. And when the nature is abstracted from material conditions, when it's considered absolutely just in itself, in a purely formal way, then I think we can say that spreadability of the form goes into overdrive, A universal, as Aristotle says, is always and everywhere. It's entirely unrestricted in space and in time. Ultimately, for Thomas, this self-extending tendency of, of form seems to be simply a function of what it is to be a form. It's just sort of what it is. Any form, he says, taken in itself, apart from material conditions, is in some way communicable and common to many, just as a form. And even form in matter, natural form, physical form, tends to extend itself in being and to communicate itself to others, communicate to others, let's say, its own, its own formula, its own ratio, by way of generation. So my question, that's all to lead in back to my question, why do these self-extending entities, these forms, have to be found at the most fundamental level of physical things? Or to put it another way, granted, if we grant that a thing's specific nature, its principle of motion consists chiefly in a form that tends to promote itself, why must a change in the thing's nature be considered an absolute generation or corruption? The simple s- starting or stopping of a substance, which is to say a primary entity. In other words, why must a nature be a substantial form? That's the question. Now, Thomas, I think his mere language favors that idea. You know, he calls form act, and he calls being, essay, he calls that actuality. And, of course, those words evoke activity. And to us, the best known, the most obvious type of activity is motion. But I think we can go deeper. We can ask, do things really call for such language? Can we see for ourselves a link between nature or form and substance or being? And I'd like to suggest that we can if we focus on a feature that for Thomas goes hand in hand with being, and that is unity. A substance is a primary entity, and it's also a primary unit. And nevertheless, in some substances, unity itself has a cause. There's a cause in the substance for its unity. There I'm thinking especially of the end of book seven of Aristotle's metaphysics. There you remember, Aristotle poses that really vital metaphysical question about the syllable ba. Remember that? Ba? I think it's important. You've got to sort of see it. Ba. Okay. This, is, this is fundamental for, for metaphysics, right here. <laughs> this is really fundamental. The question is is Ba anything more than its elements, that is, its letters? Because it's the same word in Greek, elements and the letters of the alphabet, A and B. Is Ba anything more than that? Okay. Well, yes, it is. For the letters, they could, you know, they could just be a meaningless little heap of letters. They could be like that, right, with A sort of upside down and leaning on B's head, right, what makes those to be that significant unit, hmm, that intelligible whole, which is Ba, it's not a third letter, obviously, it's the order or the composition of the two. And that's a kind of form. Right? And Aristotle says that is the cause of being, of Ba. It's that upon which follows, that order between the letters is that upon which follows immediately the letters actually being ba, and not a heap, and not ab, but precisely ba. Of course, ba is not a substance, and its form is not a substantial form. I suppose ba, a syllable, is a kind of artifact, I suppose, um, and its form is some sort of accident. Substances, Aristotle says, in the same place,, you know, exist naturally, and substantial forms are natures. So an inner cause of primary unity, a substantial unity, is a nature. And so in a sense, my question is, why is that? Can we see why that is the case? Now, in the strict definition of nature, nature's first principle of motion, also to be taken strictly is the term motion. That refers to temporal process, or what Aristotle defines most accurately, and to some people most obscurely, as the act of that which is in potency, as such. Under that definition, not every change is a motion, a change can be an instantaneous, immediate succession from being in potency to being in act, with no intermediate, partial act of something that is still in potency to further act. And not even a series of instantaneous changes is a motion, because a motion, if it's really one motion and not a combination of many, is a single act, such a single act is possible for Aristotle even though it does not exist all at once but has parts that exist in succession over time. It can still be one because it can be continuous in the technical sense of that expression. Continuous. Let me talk about that a minute. In the physics, we learn that things are in continuity with each other if their boundaries are simply one. Hmm? that is, not just in the same place, that would just be contact, but identical. For example, two parts of a line are in continuity insofar as one ends and the other begins at the very same point. With the parts of a continuous motion, the common boundary is an instant. By virtue of this identity of boundaries, the parts of a continuum, even though they're outside of each other, are united. A continuum is divisible, but it is not actually divided. Hmm. Moreover, its parts are also continua. That is, insofar as it's a continuum, it is infinitely divisible. It's not divided at all, but it's infinitely divisible. A continuum cannot be made out of simple things or indivisible elements. Hmm. And that's why emotion cannot be a series of instantaneous changes. Still, the unity of emotion is not just a question of its continuity. Emotion is not a freestanding thing. It has a subject. There's something moved. Emotion is one only if its subject is one. And the subject has to have parts. A simple entity cannot be moved directly or per se. And that's because while it's moved, the subject is partly in what it is moved toward, and, sorry, partly in what it's moved from and partly in what it's moved toward. So it has to have parts. It must be an extended thing, which is to say a body. That's the case whether or not any body is a substance. So it should be clear that what has a nature has to be a body anyway. A nature is a principle of motion existing in what is moved according to it. It's in the motion subject, as such. If the subject has to be a body, and if the motion is natural, then the nature must be in that body, too. Precisely the whole body that is the motion's proper subject. Of course, not all motions are natural, with principles in their subjects. Not all subjects of motion have natures. Some are only combinations of bodies with natures. Joined so as to move together as units for a while, like a car. Now, in the metaphysics, Aristotle treats the continuous within his accounts of unity itself. Unity, he says, is undividedness. But that comes in different grades. He says what is one to the highest degree is what is essentially indivisible, that is simple, Above all, a simple substance. Because a simple substance is not only indivisible in itself, but it's also separate. It's not part of a divisible thing. Hmm. The next strongest type of unity after that is, in fact, continuity. Here he, he defines, Aristotle defines the continuous itself in terms of motion. It's that whose parts move together and can't not do so. So, for example, the geese in a flock, if you have a flock of geese, they may move together, but they may not. They may go, each one may go on his own. So the flock is not a continuum. It's only if it has to move as a unit. Some continua, however, are more one than others, he says. If the parts are forced together, the unity is less than if they hold together on their own. And the unity is still greater if the parts are, one, are of one kind. For then there is one inner principle of the things moving as a unit that is one nature. And most one, most undivided of all, he says, are the single-natured bodies that are whole or complete. Like the simple substances, they are separate, not parts of divisible things. Parts are one in a weaker sense of the word. So again, my question would be, must a whole natural body as such be not only like a simple substance, but also a true substance in its own right? Or could the real substance, the primary entity there, be something else? Could the body's nature merely be added onto the substance and inhere in the substance somehow? Now clearly that's, that underlying substance couldn't be a simple entity. Dimensions or size can't be in a simple thing nor could the body be many simple things again a continuum cannot consist of simples but i think we can still ask what if even though it's not positively simple the substance that underlies a body's nature has no determinate size or shape or principle of motion and rest that are proper to it what if it has no form of its own but only whatever form is added onto it Or in other words, couldn't the substance just be what is called primary matter? Why not? I think it's interesting regarding that, you know, the very topic of the subject of motion brings us close to a very fundamental passage in Aristotle's treatment of substance in the categories. He says there that the most distinctive mark of a substance is that while remaining numerically one, it can be successively subject to contraries. In other words, only substances undergo change, properly speaking. And primary matter does undergo certain changes, namely generation and corruption. For instance, when a cow is transformed into a carcass. In the metaphysics, in Book 8, Aristotle takes that matter's subjection to such changes as proof that matter is, in some sense, substance. Hmm. Nevertheless, I don't think that actually gives us an affirmative answer to the question whether the substance in a natural body is just its matter. For one thing, it seems clear that Aristotle regards primary matter as substance only in a very restricted sense, not unqualifiedly. Why not? Because it's not separate. He says, it is not one or an entity in the way a this something is. In a sense, primary matter may be numerically one as a subject of one change, but it's not a full-fledged individual. It's not undivided in itself and divided from everything outside of it. It's nothing but potency for one or more individuals, one or more substances in the primary sense of the word. Also, although it's subject to change, primary matter cannot be the subject of the specific sort of change, which is motion. Generation and corruption are changes that are instantaneous. Motion, continuous change, supposes in its subject an enduring actuality that is not a motion. For the whole continuum that is moved has to hold together as a unit throughout the motion. The substance underlying the motion can't be primary matter, it has to be a, an actual body. So if there is motion, there must ultimately be bodies that are substances, right? that is, primary entities. I think that's, the, that's one conclusion that follows. Now, in the De Anima, Aristotle says that every continuum, whether temporal or spatial, has in it something simple. Not necessarily separable, but something simple that makes it one. And this is some sort of form, just as the form of Ba makes it one, even though Ba is not a continuum and so it's less one than a substance. If the continuous thing is a bodily substance, then the form is substantial. Thomas says, quote, A body's continuity depends upon the substantial form through which the body is a body. Now, he says that within a discussion of the soul. And I think his accounts um, of the soul's nature as a substantial form, which are very elaborate, are also extremely interesting for this topic. They're very pertinent to this topic, and they bring out something, I think, really illuminating. In the Summa, in the Summa Theologiae, Thomas devotes an entire questio to the relation of soul and body. It's a painstaking study of the soul's nature as a substantial form, that is, as its body's most fundamental act through which the body is first an actual entity. I just want to focus on one point in that account. It's the object of the Questio's last, and I think I would say culminating, uh, article. There, Thomas taking his cue from St. Augustine, He asks whether the whole soul, the whole soul, is in every part of the body. The whole soul. To answer that question, he distinguishes three sorts of wholeness. We always have to make distinctions, right? I'm sorry. But he distinguishes three sorts of wholeness: of power, of essence, and of quantity. The soul's whole power, he says, is not in every part of the body. Sight is only in the eyes. Hearing is only in the ears, and so forth. But the soul's whole essence, its whole formula, he says, and its perfection, is in every part. What about its whole quantity? He says, well, that question is kind of senseless. It's a dumb question. Hmm. But let me put that off for a moment. And consider first why a soul's essence must be in all the body's parts. The reason is that by its essence, the soul gives being to all the parts. This is a quote from Thomas. A form of a whole body that does not give being to each of the parts is a form that is a composition or an order, like the form of a house, or like the form of Ba. And such a form, he says, is Accidental. But a soul is a substantial form, and so it must be the form and act not only of the whole, but also of each and every part. For a sign of that, Thomas cites Aristotle. And hence, as the philosopher says, upon the soul's withdrawal, that is, upon death, just as we do not speak of an animal or a man except by equivocation in the way we speak of a painted or a stone animal, so it is with the hand, the eye, flesh, and bones. In other words, no actual part of a dead body is what any actual part of the living body was. A soul is not a structuring or a configuration. People use that language, but that's not Thomas, I think. Nor does it supervene on the body. It makes its whole body and every part of the body to be the entities that they are. All substantial forms do that. This is not just soul. All substantial forms do that. Now, to this, summer, this summa article, there are several parallel places in Thomas's works. All of them written earlier. His basic position is always the same, and so is the reason for it. A soul, a soul's essence must be in every part of its body. The whole essence, because a soul is a substantial form that by its essence gives being to every part. But some of the early treatments do contribute some helpful points, and I just want to mention a couple of them. One is that the soul is not in the body in the way in which something is in a place. This is really important to understand this, I think, to conceive this. Rather, he says, it's in in the way in which a form is in matter. What's the difference what is in a thing as in a place is contained by the thing. In some cases, the containing thing even holds the contents together. So if you have a canister of laughing gas, right, it's the canister that holds the gas together. Right? But as Aristotle says, it is the soul that holds the body together. The soul is in the body, but it's the soul that holds the body together, not the other way around. So a soul is definitely not a gas, right? And it's not a ghost, right? We have to get rid of those images. It's an act. It's a kind of unitive energy. It's a substantial form. That's one point. The other point is that a soul is not a point. Like a point, a soul is essentially indivisible or simple. It's all or none, right? Right? So whatever it's in, it is in as a whole. It's either there or not. In fact, St. Augustine's remark had to do with the soul's simplicity. But a point is a simple thing with a determinate position in in a continuum. A point is the boundary of a line. As such, it falls within the genus of quantity. We can say that a point is a a quantitative thing whose size is zero. A soul, by contrast, is is Thomas's words, outside the genus of quantity, altogether lacking in quantity, indivisible by abstraction from the whole genus of the continuous. So whereas a point has a size of zero, a soul is simply sizeless. And that's why the question of whether its whole quantity, its whole size, is in every part of the body, makes no sense. It doesn't have any quantity. If it had a size, if it had even a size zero, like a point, it couldn't be the cause of the sort of unity that sized things have, which is continuity. And still less could it cause primary unity, which is substantial unity, the unity of a this something. Something. It seems to me that understanding substantial form as whole in the whole and whole in every part helps a lot to see such form as nature, taking the term again in the strict sense of principle of motion. Even within a single body, substantial form exercises a sort of self-diffusiveness. It stretches out to all the parts and holds them in the unity of a single individual. And just by doing so, it accounts for how the body, a continuum, can be a substance of this something. Form has all sorts of functions for Thomas, but common to all of them, I think, is that while being one and simple in itself, it somehow extends over a multitude and unifies it. It's part of what it is to be a form. Now, in the case of a multitude of substances falling under the one universal or intelligible form of a natural kind, the particulars are separate entities, of course. It's an unqualified multitude. By contrast, in a particular bodily substance, whose form is particular too, the multitude is that of its parts, and those are not separate entities. The multitude is only qualified. The substantial form of one body is only one, and the body's parts all exist with that one same being. But what I'm suggesting is that some affinity with a universal, some affinity with a universal is just what we should expect if a substantial form is indeed a nature. And in fact, Thomas himself signals just that sort of, of affinity. He says, quote, What is intelligible in each thing is its quiddity, Another word for essence, quiddity. Okay. And the nature of a thing is whole in each and every part, just as the nature of a kind is whole in each and every individual. Okay. For the whole nature of man is in each and every individual, and this is indivisible. Simple. So being whole in every part entails being an indivisible. Again, not the way a point is, but as a form is. Yes being sizeless, right? So we can see how a form's causing unity and so causing being goes hand in hand with its being kind of diffusive or, as I say, stretchable. Right? And I think that to see that is to catch a glimpse of how essence, that is, that in and through which a thing has being, and nature, primary principle of motion and rest, coincide, and it's with that point, I think, that I've answered that I answer the main question of the paper. But i still got a little time, and mm, I want to say a few more things. Because to say the least, the concept of form, especially substantial form, is not a really prevalent concept right now, as you may have noticed, right? either in natural science or in philosophy. Right? That's true, even though lately there's been rather a proliferation of theories that call themselves hylomorphic. For example, in July of 2016, Oxford University Press issued a book, which has been quite well received, that presents a very broad hylomorphic theory whose stated claim to distinction is its being amorphic. It's hylomorphism without form. So they just don't want to deal with form. And so, before I close, I'd like to say a few things about the obsolescence of substantial form. First, let me give a very brief history of this notion of soul as whole in the whole and whole in every part. Really, among the scholastics, the notion was kind of commonplace. That was due, at least in part, to its appearing in Peter Lombard's sentences. In the course of explaining that God alone is totally simple, Lombard grants that some creatures, such as spiritual souls, have a qualified sort of simplicity. And about this, he cites that remark by St. Augustine, that the soul is whole in the whole and whole in every part. Augustine's evidence for that was that the whole soul perceives things that occur in every part of the body. The whole soul feels what happens in your feet, for example. Both his discussion and Lombard's, in fact, are about human souls, spiritual souls. But Aquinas is certainly not the only one to extend the notion to all souls and to all substantial forms. We find St. Albert, St. Bonaventure, maybe already Alexander of Hales doing the same thing. Mm, Especially in Albert, the extension is defended along the same lines as as we saw in St. Thomas, that the soul gives being to every part. After Thomas, the notion... Gets extended to all substantial forms by Giles of Rome, also by some Franciscans, great names such as Richard of Middleton or William de la Mar. But soon the, the situation changes kind of drastically. For example, William of Ockham and also his followers, John Buridan and Nicholas Orem, give us a very different view. They don't reject substantial form altogether, nor do they simply dismiss the idea of whole in the whole and whole in every part, but they say that that only applies to spiritual forms, rational souls. On their view, any sub-rational substantial form is only partly in part of its body. And why is that? That's because, according to them, any such form is itself extended and quantified. It has quantity in three dimensions. It's not sizeless. And it's so of itself, they say, they say, by itself. What would Thomas say about that? I think he would say that a form that has quantity of itself needs another form to unify it. It really does start to sound like a gas or a ghost. And that, according to historians, seems to be how substantial forms eventually came to be thought of, kind of generally, right? And if that's the case, it's no wonder that Descartes sort of held these forms in scorn. He said, let's get rid of these things, right? Because they don't even pretend to do what they were originally positive for, which is to explain the unity of a thing. They don't even pretend to do that anymore. So get rid of them. Even before Occam, though, I think we see a trend toward weakening the unifying role of substantial form. I'm referring to something that shows up not only in Occam, but also already in John Duns Scotus and others. And that has to do with, with, with ba again, with our syllable. Is, ba really is important, you know, it's really it's very important. Aristotle had said that, that besides A and B, the syllable ba has a third factor. A and B are its matter, and this other factor is its form. The form is what makes it a definite and an intelligible unity and not just a heap of letters. But now these authors, Scotus, Occam, and and several others, they take that question, they they apply it to a very different combination. They apply that question to the combination of matter and form itself. They ask whether... Besides its matter and its form, does a substance have a third factor? Okay. Scotus says it does. Occam says it doesn't. Hmm. And Occam got, got in a lot of trouble for saying that because he was a Franciscan. You know. But, and Scotus was... But anyway, that's another story. I'm not going to go into the reason for those contrasting answers, though. Uh, and I won't even discuss how Thomas might assess those reasons... Because it seems to me that he would be more inclined just to throw the question out as betraying a misunderstanding. If you ask, is there a third thing besides the matter and the form, then you're likening the matter and the form themselves to the letters A and B. Right? But of course, for Aristotle, both A and B aren't matter. Right? They're material factors. Only the third factor is a form. So the very question, if you ask that question, you're treating the form of a thing as a material factor, not as a form, okay? And that's not just a terminological point. That A and B are both material and neither is formal in Ba, means that neither is taken as giving unity to the other. A doesn't unify B and B doesn't unify A, right? Okay? If form and matter are like A and B, then neither one unifies the other. And that's pretty much what Occam says. He even likens the unity of matter and form, the union of matter and form, to the union of two parts of a continuum. Obviously, neither part of a continuum unifies the other part. That seems pretty clear. Now, you might be thinking... If primary matter is pure potency with no act and no essay and so no unity of its own, then we have to grant in any case that the substantial form unifies it and gives it being. Well, that might be true, but that presupposes St. Thomas's idea of primary matter. Hmm? After Thomas, it became increasingly common to hold that primary matter has its own act, and its own essay. Scotus holds that. Matter, he says, needs form only to complete the kind and for any activity, but it already has being, and already, already has unity. And Occam even makes matter a direct subject of accidents, at least of quantity. So for these thinkers, and this is I come to my conclusion, for these thinkers, form is needed in order to give a kind and an activity but not to give being or to constitute an unqualified subject. And surely that's getting close to the idea that I proposed at the beginning, that of an actual entity that is more fundamental than any nature underlying the nature. And I think that Thomas would say that giving primary matter an essay of its own inevitably turns natural kinds, like dogs or cows or whatever, into mere combinations. Like Aristotle, the other great metaphysical example in the metaphysics in book seven, the snub nose. Right? That's just a combination of curvature and nose. Right? So it, may- it would make matter the true substance, the true this, right? and all the forms would be mere accidents of it. I could go on about this. You find something like this already in Plato's Timaeus, in which Aristotle criticizes, but I won't go into that now. The point is that such forms won't differ very much from the forms of artifacts. Nor need they be in every part of the subject because they don't have to give essay to every part. That was the point. That was the reason. It had to be in every part. And they will not be the termini of unqualified generations or corruptions, these forms. There will be no unqualified generations or corruptions because the true substance, matter, is permanent. In other words, such forms will be denatured. A nature that is not substantial, that is not an essence, is really no nature at all. Thank you very much. Oh, thank
1: you so much for your very comprehensive uh, lecture this evening. You mentioned at one point in your lecture that uh, the soul is the first act of the body. Is that correct? Right. If that's the case, would you be willing to grasp uh, that there are, could be, uh, counted uh, masculine souls and feminine souls?
0: <laughs> What's? The, can you explain the connection?
1: <laughs> yes, well, uh, a particular body is either masculine or feminine, and so...
0: Uh, that's because the body is put into act by its form. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, that's uh, that's a hard question. I can really only tell you what, you know, Aristotle raises the question in, in book 10 of the, I think it's book 10 of the metaphysics, isn't it? Where he raises the question, why male and female aren't different species? Why aren't they different kinds? Right. Hmm. I think he would say, if it's the form, the substantial form that makes the male male and the female female, they would have to be different species. Yeah. And he thinks they can't, it makes no sense to say that they're different species because they come together in the generation of both male and female. You know, So that the species is one. Right. So the distinction between them he says, and Thomas follows this, is, is, is substantial, but it's on the side of the matter. It's because of the different, different conditions in the genera- that, that accompany the generation of the individuals that become male or female, so that they retain the same species. And that's pretty important, you know, at least in Thomas's metaphysics, because things that are of different species in necessarily are unequal in rank. Right? One is going to be higher than the other. Right? So if we want to preserve the equality of male and female, despite the differences, we better not say they're different species. And if we don't want to say they're different species, at least in Thomas's metaphysics, we don't, we don't want to make them uh, differ as male and female in virtue of their souls. Right? Okay? There's there's other sources of the difference, that's all. His account of the differences probably leaves a little bit to to be desired, I'll grant you that, right? Because that's the weakness of his biology, but... Thank you so much, Father Brock,
1: for that uh, rich and dear presentation. I wonder if you could address for us the subsistence of the soul Um, and clarify what makes souls different from materialized structures like quartz crystals and
0: H2O. What makes souls different from materialized structures, and all souls, not just the subsistent ones, but in general?
1: Uh thanks for that. Yeah, and I'm thinking especially of, uh, of rational souls, as opposed to animal souls or vegetable souls. What, what marks the, what makes for the subsistence of the soul? Is it the capacity for selection? Um, Can you explain, sort of, what what differentiates those types of subs- substantial
0: forms? yeah that's a good question. It's a hard question. I think it's clear why they can't be material structures right if because then the as Thomas says, if the soul itself has matter in it, right then um, it would need another principle to unify it right? and that would be the real soul there, the unifying principle. so the soul, And even if it has what... You know, he knows of a theory about spiritual matter, which is matter uh, without quantity, that doesn't bring quantity with it. He rejects that on the grounds that it would exclude intellectual activity. So it's the intellectual things that somehow... As you know, the the intellectual souls that are said to subsist. What does that mean? Again, it comes back to sort of stupid is as stupid does. But... It means that what is a subject of activity is also a subject of existence, right? To subsist is to be kind of a subject of existence. And in a sense, in a somewhat qualified sense, but in a sense, the soul, the human soul, is a subject of activity, Understanding doesn't take place in a bodily organ, he thinks. It's in the soul itself. And if the soul operates or acts somehow, it also subsists. Now, of course, the understanding isn't the cause of the subsistence, it's the other way around. It's because the soul is a subsistent sort of form that it's capable of, of having its own activities because the, you know, the, subs- the substantial order is prior to the order of activity. Substance is first act and activity is second act. But I think there, if you want to say, what's the difference between the souls that subsist, the forms that subsist and the forms that don't, I think Thomas's answer is they're just higher-grade forms, Really, it, it's more natural for a form, if I can use that word, to subsist. Because so, forms bring being with them per se. All forms, even the forms that don't subsist, bring existence with them. They make the thing exist. But somehow they're too weak to exist on their own. They can't hold on to the existence by themselves. But those are the, those are the, the strange, those are the odd sort of forms the low-level forms, which happen to be the ones that we're more familiar with or that are more obvious to us. But the normal situation sort of for a form is to be not only the principle of existence, but also the subject. And our souls are that. They're subjects of existence, but they also communicate their own existence to the body and give the being and unity to the body. But I think it's really... And Thomas even says, you know, form is said by analogy. He says it's not a univocal term. Because that's clear because you have accidental forms and substantial forms, right? And the forms of corruptible things and the forms that don't subsist would not be beings and forms in quite the same sense, right? They would be in different genera, really, right? But it, it's just the, they have sort of greater or lesser perfection of the, of the nature of form. That's how I would kind of understand it. I don't know if that answers the question.
1: No, thank you. Thank um, you follow up on the point about um, conceptual thought and subsistence, what can we say um, to those that might suggest that thought, conceptual thought, is an emergent feature of a materialized structure like the way that, say, sense cognition or something like that might be? I mean, we've got people who are looking at how um, materialized structures are the basis for um, new, new capacities for action that, that weren't there before say crystals or even an animal sense cognition, um, why not extend that to intellection the way that some materialists might... Yeah. I, I, I was conceptual thought not just an emergent feature
0: of a Yeah, that's that's a hard question. That's good. Uh, well, I, of course, you know the arguments, the direct arguments that Thomas gives for the immateriality or the incorporeality of thought, right? His main one, he just gets from Aristotle, that thought you can think everything, right? If it had a bodily nature of its own, then that would block the others. The way you can see all colors because your pupil has no color in it. If it were blue, through tinted blue, your pupil, everything would look blue. But it seems to me that in order for that answer to get any traction, you've got to go back to the study, uh, understanding of sensation itself. Right? I mean, the idea, the weird, the really weird idea in Thomas, if I can put it that way, for us, and it takes a lot of thought just to get used to the idea, is that there are gradations of immateriality. That it's not just all or none, body or spirit. Body, you know, corporeal, incorporeal. That's not the way he sees it. That's, you know, the Cartesian account. You can say a lot more about Descartes' idea of, of soul, I think, in connection with this stuff about the soul as form, as, as extending itself and being diffusive. But, the point would be that even sensation, as you know, sensation for Thomas has a qualified kind of immateriality, right? And you can't really even account for sensation in purely material terms. It doesn't require a spiritual soul, but it qu- requires a substantial form. Well, ultimately, you'd have to get back to subs- bodily substances generally. <laughs> that you, they need forms, right, to get the ball rolling. I think if you get rid of the idea of substantial form... The whole notion of spirit just is going to collapse on us. Right? We have nothing in terms of which to think about it. And the immateriality of it isn't going to affect, isn't going to touch us. Because when Thomas says immateriality, he's thinking precisely of a high grade of, of, of form. And if you eliminate form, you haven't got anything for the grade to be a grade of. Right? It's just a negation of matter. Right? And that just sounds kind of spooky. It's just something spooky, which is what they say. We don't want any of these spooky things. So I think we have to go all the way back to the immateriality of sensation and even the idea of substantial form as a principle, uh, generally, of bodily substance, if we're really going to make any sort of Thomistic headway anyway uh, toward the understanding of the human soul as something spiritual. Father, how how do you see
2: this question as arising? In other words, at the end of the lecture, you gave a short history of some of the thinkers after Thomas Aquinas who began to argue against the unity of substantial form and assert that there might be different levels at which different substantial yeah. forms coincide. Does this kind of question only
0: arise once you have that confusion? Which kind of The question I'm asking, you mean? Mm-hmm. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the question is, is, comes up anyway. Right. It came, it, just, it came to mind, we, we had a conference last year at our university just on the, the metaphysical dimensions, this was the name of the conference, the metaphysical dimensions of nature, right? It was a nice title, right? <laughs>
1: right?
0: And we got all sorts of papers on all sorts that you can imagine, right? It's sort of wide open, right? But I started wondering, well, yeah, why does nature have a metaphysical dimension? How, how metaphysical is nature, right? Why does nature have to be substantial? You know, we all read that in Aristotle and the Physics, right, and in the Metaphysics, and we just said, yeah, okay, it's form and matter, and that's but why? I don't, I don't think that the question. um, Maybe it's true that once you once you treat form the way they do, right, the question is going to be more urgent. Because it's, you're coming close, I think, to the reason, well, why do we need form at all? Right? Why, but, but there it's, it's, it's sort of, if we don't make form the substantial, then we don't even need it as, an, as accidental. It starts to look like. We don't even need the concept of form. Yeah. yeah it's,
2: if you think about the process of learning and coming into philosophy, as St. Thomas and Aristotle discuss, you have to first, it starts with an experience of natural things. And so, it's not so much, that's why I asked the question, because the question um, supposes that I have a clear and distinct concept of essence. But I have another one of nature, and I'm whether they're associate. But in the, in the process of natural philosophy isn't the experience the reverse. I, I live in a sensible world and there are things around me, and I realize that some of them, um, only are what they are because man has arranged them in a certain way, but others have an interior principle of, of operating as they do. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, I call the one natural, and I call the other artificial. Um, then, you, you ask about motion and change. and Like you said, you realize there are two principles, something that underlies something that comes to be and changes. Right. And then, in Book 2, Chapter 1, the physics Aristotle says nature is both matter and form. So before you've ever gotten to the metaphysical notion of essence, you're seeing that as uh, as nature through nature, through natural substances.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's a very good question. And this, we're not going to resolve this here because this is touching on a, an old debate. Um, Largely among Dominicans, and so I really would rather not get into that <laughs> debate. Right. The River Forest School, and the, and so, um, so I really don't. But I would let me just bring in. I mean, what you say is right. You know, we start with some natural thing. That's the natural object of art, of our intellect, and all the rest. You know, but you make it sound as though the notion of essence. This metaphysical notion that kind of comes down the road when you you know you finally get to the third year in philosophy and you start doing some metaphysics or something, right? It, it, somehow, meta- the essence comes in. And here I would really appeal to w- the way Father Duan approaches it because I think he's right about this. Right? This is really it's delicate and it's you got to make a lot of distinctions. You know, it, it's true that Thomas says that you know we start from natural things. He says the natural object of the human intellect is the nature that is the quiddity of a sensible thing. Now quiddity is kind of a metaphysical notion. Right? And you, gotta, you you have to remember, too, the very first notion that we have is a being. Right? Now, the, the, there's a big fight about whether uh, the being that's the first notion that we grasp is the being that metaphysics studies. But anyway, it's being. Right? And it's pretty quick that we start asking like the question, well, what is that? Right? And that's a metaphysical order of questioning. I think I think that's pretty clear. Thomas is real clear in the metaphysics, in a commentary on the metaphysics, that it's only metaphysics that determines what things are. Right? That determines the existence of things and what they are. Everything else, every other science, presupposes what things are and explains their properties or their activities. And the question, of what is it? That's pretty. That's pretty primitive in the human mind. I don't think it comes down the road. So I think from the start you've got this mixture of things in the mind going on, right, of the the, meta, the metaphysical side and the desire to just understand why things act the way they act and why they move the way and the way they move. And that's and they're coming together, but they're both there from the start. And it's pretty hard. It's not easy to this say. Mm, Exactly how they're related to each other at that moment, but I wouldn't just put the metaphysics, you know,
3: later on. Father Brock, I'm going to use my prerogative holding the ask okay. a final question, oh, okay. which I think is, is philosophically much less difficult, uh, but might be uh, just as just as pressing uh, for a lot of us as we as we're trying to think through your your talk. Um, I was speaking some months ago with some. Uh, Some Domestic Institute students, actually, they're advanced doctoral level students at a major research university in biology, and they were telling me about their research into subcellular structures and and how all of that works. And they found it very challenging to not think of subcellular structures as individuals with natures, in a certain sense. I mean, they they wouldn't put it that way, but... um, as, as discrete individuals, not as, as parts of a unified whole, and certainly not in a kind of continuum, as you described it, which I've, I found fascinating on this kind of question. And it seems to me that in many respects, not only in biology, but lots of other uh, empirical sciences, do precisely break things that are continuous on this account, the account that you gave, into uh, discrete things, whether it's an organism, on a level of biology or whether it's like a machine yeah. um, mimicking human perception where, you know, our perception is of a unified action. You know, you swing the golf club. Uh, but a machine is grasping instance, instance in that in that motion, which is necessarily like mathematically divided up. Right. Can you comment on how what you've articulated how to speak about those problems, or how to speak about this to people who think in, yeah. that, in
0: that way? Yeah. I don't know if I can. Um, well, uh, well uh, the only thing I've tried to argue for here is that there have to be bodies that are substances. There have to be continua that are substances. I didn't say which ones they are, right? I personally like to think that I am a substance, right? <laughs> I would like to say, and, and everybody here, I, I prefer to think that, that, and maybe there are arguments for that that comes down the road. Um, clearly, life by, organisms present a, you know, they're, they're, Aristotle already knew of arguments, sort of mechanistic arguments for life. You remember Empedocles? He, he quotes Empedocles. He refers to Empedocles, who says that plants are really just the reason why the 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 the, 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 the limbs. And the, and the leaves go up and a plant is that it has fire in it and fire goes up and then the reason why the roots go down is that it has, it has earth in it okay? and the earth makes it go down the earth tends down okay? um, so it's kind of a mechanistic account of, it's pretty crude but it's kind of a and Aristotle says well that's, that's great but what holds the plant together why doesn't it just fall apart okay? and why does it grow to a certain shape and size and then stop growing and all the rest? He's, and that kind of argument is what gives it what he thinks allows him to say that a plant has a nature of its own and isn't just a combination of natures. But, you know, I was talking i was talking once to uh, um, a confer of your, Nicanor Austriaco, Father Austriaco, who knows something about the biology there. And uh, but we weren't talking about this particular problem of seeing the parts themselves as kind of little individuals so that you've got a community of individuals and that a unit there, That's another, that would be another side of it. What we were talking about is, is the fact that, for example, you know, if, if Aquinas' account is correct, then you really don't have any water in you. Right? You've got some watery stuff, but it's all human stuff. It's human watery stuff. It's not water. Right? And, and that would be something that, in principle, would be empirically testable. Because all the way down, even to the smallest particles, if you could come up with a way of examining them, the smallest entities there, their way of functioning will differ. Right? But he it's kind of has reassuring me that as far as they can see all the way down to the smallest things, you know, the, the functioning of molecules and even of atoms in the whole cell is a little bit different from its, its spontaneous way of functioning, from the way it is outside,'? Right? So it's not really quite the same thing. Okay? It's that kind of, you know, and, and we want, we, I think we should be empirical about it. If anybody's empirical, let's say, Tom, you know, look at this stuff. Okay? But that's the sort of thing you have to look for. And the same thing, I think, with the parts. I think it's something analogous to that. OK, the parts are um, they're doing their own thing, and different parts do very different things okay? in the whole. Uh, that's really clear. Mm, Aristotle says that the parts of the animals and the parts of the plants, those are substances too in, in, in a qualified sense. But do they function that way? Are they what they are even outside the whole? You know, Just what we heard Thomas say here. The eye is not an eye anymore. The eye of a dead cow is not an eye. Right? Are any of those parts really the same outside? Or are they really... Each one has got its own way of functioning and the different parts have different powers... And different activities associated with them, but they are ordered toward the whole, and you can see that by the fact that they don't even exist. They tend not to even exist outside the whole.
3: Well, on that note, let's give our thanks to Father Brown for a very fine. Thank you very much. Thank you.